16th chapter. John 17 will take up where we left off last week in verse 6. John 17, 6. We'll be looking at verses 6, 7, and 8 this morning. I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. You have, know, you, you have, have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we continue in our worship before you, we ask that you would bless us as a people assembled to hear your word, a people in whom you have done a good work by the hearing of the word and the working of your spirit, that we are a redeemed people, rescued out from under the bondage of sin. Indeed, uh, we've been delivered from drinking the cup of your wrath, even to the dregs, for there is another who has taken that on himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Fathers, we are assembled before you. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see Christ, that we would behold our Redeemer in the beauty of who he is and the blessings that he ever blesses us with. Lord, grant by your Spirit that the word would not return unto you void. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Just remember, as we're looking at uh, this prayer, uh, we are given the privilege, God, by his appointment, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us the privilege of listening as Jesus prays to his Father. How intimate, how marvelous that we should be granted this privilege. And as all scriptures are God-breathed and are for our prophets, surely this is, as we have insights granted us by what John has recorded as the Spirit moved him along. There are a number of Jesus' prayers recorded in the four Gospels, and they carry a mark of simplicity. Uh, they're not filled with uh, sophistry. It is you know, the wisdom of men and fancy, lang- fancy language. It's they're clear, simple uh, addresses unto God, and that's very instructive to us on how we should pray. We know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, takes some time to correct uh, the erroneous ways that men of his day prayed. But having said that, when we consider this prayer recorded in John 17, there's, there's something different about it. It's not just that it's a longer prayer, or we could say a longest record of one of Jesus' prayers. You know, when we encounter his prayers elsewhere, we should not assume that there's some total of their length was what was recorded. But here we have this longer prayer. And what's remarkable about it, it's who Jesus prays for. We, we noted when we begin John 17 that it follows the, the pattern of the high priest as he would prepare to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He would prepare himself with great diligence, um, and then he would pray for himself. And then he prayed for his colleagues, we could say, the, the fellow, his fellow priest who served in the temple. And then he would pray for the people as one who interceded on their behalf. Jesus followed this pattern, although Jesus did not pray concerning his own sin, for he is sinless. 
He is the one who's come to be the sin bearer, and he does so sinless and undefiled, pure, spotless as the Son of God. So what is it that Jesus prays for? We see that Jesus prays about glory. So we've already covered he, he prays about the Father's glory and His glory, that glory that He had before the Incarnation that the Father would restore, that is to make it known, to take that which was hidden and manifest it before the eyes of men. And what's remarkable, remember, it's, it's through the cross that this glory of God in Christ Jesus is made known. It's one of those wonderful paradoxes that we find in the Gospel. But now as we take up verse 6, Jesus shifts away from himself to his disciples, or we can say his colleagues, his fellow laborers. These, these are the ones who have been with him since the beginning of his ministry. These are the ones who have labored alongside him. And we shouldn't dismiss the reality of that because, remember, he sent them out two by two, first with the 12 and then the 70, that they were given power from him. They went under his authority, and the glory of God was demonstrated even through these vessels of clay as they served full of the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. These men have been made partakers uh, of the Spirit, and God has equipped them to be witnesses. That's one of the natures of them being apostles, that they would have been with him from the beginning, that they would have heard his preaching and teaching and seen the miracles, that they would witness the resurrection. He prays for these men. So we find this middle section is the longest part of Jesus' prayer as he's praying for those whom we refer to as the disciples that followed him uniquely and were appointed as apostles. Jesus, beginning in verse 6, mentions them. Even though he begins here in verse 6, he doesn't make any request to the Father concerning them until verse 11. And we're going to look at that, what, what's going on here. Our focus this morning in this sermon is going to be on giving. That would be the great theme that runs through this, the giving, the giving of the Father. This is so grand and familiar to us as we consider again John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that's what we see in Christ Jesus, this giving of the Father and the giving of the Son and ultimately the giving of the Holy Spirit who brings the gospel and the work of Christ to us. But this theme is giving. It's what Jesus prays about in the text, the giving that the Father has done. We're going to use four main headings. God gave a people to Jesus out of the world. This is not a new doctrine, the, the, the doctrine of election, the, the predestination, whereby God has appointed those for salvation. Um, it's something we've covered. We've already covered in the prayer, but it reoccurs. So we'll be looking at that. God gave a people to Jesus out of the world, and then Jesus was given by the Father to those people. For God so loved that he gave. Thirdly, God's name manifests to his people in that, as we'll see, that as Jesus manifests the Father, he's giving the Father, he's revealing the Father to his people. And then finally, there will be a response. Jesus' people kept his word. There's, we'll take that up. We'll see it's the giving of obedience to the God who is saved. So that's our theme of giving. This calls to mind, this passage calls to mind the words of James, Jesus' half-brother, the one who was the son of Mary and Joseph. James, who wrote the epistle near the end of the New Testament. What does he say in James 1, 7, 17 and 18? He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every 
good and perfect gift. It's from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So this theme is one that is echoed throughout the New Testament, the giving of God to a people. We'll begin then with God gave a people to Jesus out of the world. Before Jesus begins to make intercession for the 11 disciples who have remained with him, there were 12, but we know Judas went out to his own inn, but there's 11 who have remained with him, and he describes them to the Father. This is how he begins his prayer. He's describing these who have remained with him, declaring how it is that they became his people. And it's clear, as we've covered before, it was not according to the will of man, but it was according to the will of God. It was by the working of God that they became his people. So we notice it's these men, and in fact, all men, women, boys, and girls that are Jesus' people, they are the Father's gift to his only begotten Son. Do you belong to Jesus? It's according to the will of the Father. He gave you to his Son, each one by name. Think about this. Jesus has a people because the Father loves the Son. We consider that as Jesus was saying, you know, reveal my glory once more, that what Jesus undertook to do uh, in the Council of Peace before the foundation of the world, that there were certain things he would do, that he would come to earth, that he would be incarnate, that he would walk amongst men, that he would live in, uh, under the realities uh, of sin, Adam's sin and the curse for that sin, and that he would ultimately become a sin bearer and go to the cross and die to pay the penalty for his people. Jesus agreed to do this, and the Father gave him a people as a gift, that he would redeem those people. It wasn't just, well, go to earth, my son, and, and I hope somebody decides to follow you. No, it was very specific, God acting. He gave a people to his son, and the son paid the penalty for those people's sins. He purchased them with his blood, and the Holy Spirit brought that salvation to them. So we heard in verse 2, Jesus was praying, as you have given him, he's speaking in the third person of himself, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. There's that same note. Um, it's repeated again in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire they, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Have you ever pondered this truth? Jesus received a people. From the Father. As the Creator, all of creation is His to do with as He will. That's what Paul says in Romans that uh, as the potter does with the will as He will with the clay, even so God with His creatures, the sovereign Creator over all. And God the Father gave a people to His Son, and those people were sinners. Filthy, unworthy, unholy, unrighteous, offensive people. You might say, what, what kind of gift is that? Well, you see, God knows what he's going to do. He sees beyond the moment and beyond the realities. God sees that by his glorious work of salvation through his son, he will accomplish something most glorious, most righteous, most exalting to him, that it is through this that God and his son and the Holy Spirit would receive great glory, that it would be ascribed unto him. The sinners given by the Father as a love gift to the Son. Do we think of ourselves that way as redeemed people? Do we think about that as what we are? We are the Father's love gift to his Son. And the Father, out of his love for the Father and for his people, 
He delighted to do the Father's will and to save these people that the Father had given him. This is the focus in this passage. Listen to this focus on this truth. Verse 6, I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 9, I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. Verse 11, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Verse 12, those whom you gave me I kept. We can't miss that, can we? This is God's doing. Again, we, we hear this, and John 3.16 reverberates in our, our memory that God so loved, and that is why he gave. Sinclair Ferguson suggests on this theme that we think of a, a young Christian man who was in love with a girl that he met, perhaps at college or something. He's been dating her. And so this Christian young man begins to pray to God about this young woman, and he does so by beginning to just by describing her. He opens his prayer, describing her. Lord, she's so beautiful. I love everything about her. She loves you, Lord. It is amazing to me that you have brought us together. Lord, I pray. You see, before he begins to petition, he's, he's recounting who this one is. Does this young man think that he needs to tell the Lord all these things? God knows all things. He already knows what this man thinks. No, he's simply in this prayer, praying this way, exposing his heart and telling God what this young lady means to him and why she's so important to him. Often we do the same thing when we pray for those whom we love, perhaps your parents, as you pray for your children, husbands, praying for your wives, wives, praying for your children, to, before God, recount how precious these ones are to them, how much you love them. Indeed, we see this with Jesus. Jesus does the same thing. He tells the Father, about those whom the Father has given to him, how precious they are to him. He celebrates uh, the relationship that he has with them. Jesus is telling him how much he loves them. Can we hear that? Do we hear the expression of the God-man, the Son, in gratitude for what the Father has done in giving to him a people? In John 16:32, let us remember... Jesus, just before he begins his prayer, has warned these same 11 men that he is now speaking of. He warns them. He's mindful of their infirmities. He's mindful of their weakness. He's mindful that they are sinners. And he tells them that they're all going to scatter from him. In a matter of hours, they're, they're going to run from the one who they have been dealt, uh, uh, who has dealt with them so graciously they will abandon him. And then before the next morning dawns, Peter will have denied him. Three times. And yet Jesus intentionally prays these words so that the disciples would hear him. He's told them this reality, and now he's praying of how delighted he is in them. This gift of the Father that he has given to them, to him. And he just, Jesus refers to them as a gift. Let us remember who these men are. Often Jesus has had to say to them, Oh, you have little faith. Have I been with you so long and yet, and you know, whatever follows, and yet you have not known me on one occasion, yet it is, what is it that moves Jesus so deeply? It's that these are the ones who his Father has given to him as a gift. The Father loves them, and he's loved them prior to the laying of the foundation of the earth. The Father loves his people so much that he gave them to his Son so that his Son would save them from their sin. This is marvelous. 
Jesus knows who they are. He knows where they came from. He Even in his prayer, he says, you gave them to me out of the world. They, they were amongst the mass of Adam's descendants. They, they were sinners, unworthy, unrighteous, undeserving in the world without aid, without hope, that would have perished in their sin under the wrath of God for all eternity except that God so loved and that he loved his son. So he gave these people to his son. Brothers and sisters, let us never lose sight of this reality. We're no better than these men. Sometimes they might say, well, you know, they're a different category than we are, but they're not. They were wretched sinners as we are. We're unworthy, undeserving. But let us remember that we are the gift that the Father gave to his Son, and that the Father so loved us that he gave us to the Son, and that he gave his Son to us, as we're going to hear in just a moment. This is all God's doing. And, and when we sin, Why? Do we go beat ourselves up in the corner? Why do we wallow in the misery of sin when we've been given a great Savior and a great salvation who is ready to forgive us? He's already paid the penalty for our sin. Our first response should be to run to the Father. So great is his love for us that he's given us to his Son and he's given the Son to us. Just think how much briefer our seasons of sin would be. Would that we would be not like David when he's looking at Bathsheba and his servant said, Is that not the wife for Uriah the Hittite? That in that moment that the love of God being given by God to the Son, that David would have fled to Christ and repented of the, the lustful look. But we run off and our sins are carried away because we lose sight of the realities. You see, God's electing grace is not cause for boasting in ourselves. It's cause for boasting in God for what he has done, what he has predetermined, that all praise and glory should go unto our God. Now the Father and the Son knew that it would require that there would be a substitute. They knew that a spotless sacrifice would be necessary. Yes, that Jesus would have to die to save his people, these people, these men, with all their faults, Jesus, as the man, Jesus of Nazareth, has walked with him three years. He knows what they are. And he knows what we are. And yet he was willing to die to save his people from the sin. The Father and the Son knew that in time they would have to send the Holy Spirit to bring new life to these dead sinners. It would be necessary for him who is the Holy Spirit to enter into our unholy beings to bring the salvation that Christ secured on the cross. And yet we see the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit so loved that they gave. They each gave in their part to save a people for themselves. Do you meditate on these truths? Let me encourage you to meditate on these truths. That you would, uh, when you have sinned, draw near to God and just marvel again. You know, even as Jesus begins by praying, remembering uh, what Father, the Father has given him and his delight in those whom he has given him, that when we have sinned, that we would come and rejoice before God. God, I marvel that you so love me. I marvel that you gave your son. I marvel that, that he bore my sins on the cross that he who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. And then from this basis, uh, 
declaring to God what he knows, but also reminding ourselves of the reality that we would confess our sins with confidence, with boldness, with assurance, from a heart full of faith, knowing that God is ready to forgive us from all our sins. People of God, don't ever put yourself down as worthless. This is what Satan does. He comes with his barbs when we've sinned, saying, yeah, look at yourself now. <laughs> Call yourself a Christian. You're ridiculous. You bring a mockery to the gospel. You mock the name of Christ. Yes, but God loves me. He gave me to his son, and he has crushed your head, and I will serve him and not sin or Satan or the world. Secondly, we see that Jesus has been given by the Father to his people. Jesus' people are those, all those, who receive Jesus as their Savior, the one whom the Father sent. We've recounted John 3.16, but look at verse 7 and 8. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, and I have given to them the words which you have given me. In this, Jesus is declaring He's part of that giving. He's the means whereby he is given to his people. As the word of God, he comes declaring the word of God, the will of God, which is our salvation. He is the one, the living word of God, who declares to us that he is God's gift to us. And he has given himself to these people. He's giving himself sacrificially day by day, walking with these men, being tender and patient with them teaching them, instructing them, long-suffering with their infirmities. He has given himself to them over and over, but ultimately he has given himself to them as his Savior. As we saw as we begin this chapter, that it was the will of the Father that the Son should be the suffering servant to save a people, and the Son willingly did so, that he willingly gave himself to his people. Jesus' people who can be described and defined by the relationship to the Father as well as to the world and to the Word. When it comes to our relationship to the Father, we have a relationship to the Father through our union with Jesus Christ. By faith we are saved. We are united to Christ. And thus God, the Creator, think of that, God the Creator, the Almighty God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing becomes our Father. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to call on him Abba Father, my Father. In relationship to the world, although we are in the world, we are not of the world. Jesus will cover this later in his prayer. But this is reality. Our relationship to the world is we live in it, but we don't live like it. We're not a part of it. We were once were in that kingdom of darkness, but God has rescued us out and brought us into a kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his dear son. And our relationship to the world must be forever more different. Yes, it's an area that we struggle with, is it not? It's where we find ourselves prone to sin. The world is going one way, and God has called us to walk another way. The world's on the broad path that leads to destruction. The Lord has appointed and called us, commanded us to walk on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. It's tough going. But we remember, we're going a different direction. We're not of that mass that is deceived and, and dead and, and following after unrighteousness. We belong to one who has delivered us. Our relationship to the world is different. But also the word of God, our relationship to it, it is life. 
The Word of God has come to us, proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And we believe what God has spoken. We believe His Word. And we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. The Word that once thundered with the law now is the comfort of God in Christ Jesus. It is our hope, our joy, our salvation. It is our delight that we would meditate on it. We're refreshed, blessed, fed, nourished, strengthened, washed, and renewed by the Word. That's our relationship And the word is Christ. We dwell in him. Well, there's at least one more way that Jesus' people can be described. Consider just briefly, uh, describe how we relate to the Father, to the world, and to the word. There's one more way. It's because they have received Jesus himself as he was given by the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the reality. that we. This is uh, how we are described. We are a people who have received the Christ who has been given. We have believed on the one who has proclaimed to us eternal life. And in him we shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, John 8 declares this giving of the Father and the receiving of his people. Verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them. As believers, we've received what the Father has given, even his Son, the Word. Jesus was sent, and he comes on God the Father's terms, not man's terms. We've covered this before. There are those who believe that Jesus came from the Father. They, they, they believe he's a, a great prophet, a, a miracle worker, a, a good teacher. There's many things that people believe, but it's necessary that we believe that he is the one set by the Father to redeem us, that there is no other like him. We must believe on him as the Father has given him. He is a redeemer. He is a savior. His very name means savior of sinners, and that he is God come in the flesh. Is God incarnate. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The world sees Jesus as many false things and refuses to receive him as he is. Remember when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, they thought they knew him. He grew up in their community, and because his glory as the only begotten of the Father was veiled because of his humanity, they, they, they scoff, say, is this not the son of Joseph and Mary? Are not his brothers and sisters with us? Who does he think he is? We know who he is. And they missed the king of glory. They missed God incarnate. They missed the very one in whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, it's necessary that we receive Jesus as the Father has given him lest we reject him and perish under God's wrath. Jesus celebrates in his prayer to his Father that those whom he has given to him, what does he say in verse 7? They have known that all things which you have given me are from you. You see, here's that element of faith. Jesus has declared this. He's proclaimed it. He's preached it. This is the message. I've been sent from the Father. I come with the words of life. And there are these who are his are the ones who believe that. They believe God, just like Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him him as righteousness. It's no different for us. We hear the word. We behold the word, and we believe on him. And we have life. Jesus is the one promised by God through the prophets throughout the Old Testament. 
God described that Messiah, as we're, we're so close to that in, I, in Isaiah, as a suffering servant. We're going to come to the, to the depth of the suffering that Jesus came to take up, came to endure, and indeed has now accomplished. But the people didn't want that kind of Messiah. They wanted a, a warrior king like David. They wanted one to lead them to battle over things of this world, things that are fleeting, things that pass away. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there, there is enduring as the morning mist. We saw that this morning with a fog and within a matter of an hour or two, you know, it's beautiful, sunny, blue skies. That's what the people expected God to deliver them from, things that are so temporary. Jesus came into the world, was sent by the Father to address our greatest need, sin, the bondage of sin, that we are dead in unrighteousness, that we are unable to help ourselves. God sent his Son to deliver us. He gave him, and thus he says, these have known that all these things which you have given me are from you. I've given them the word of God. I've given them the word of truth. Do you believe this? Is this your profession of faith? Is this your hope that you receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, sent from the Father to save sinners? Oh, that we would see afresh and anew the beauty of Jesus. There is none like him. The fairest of 10,000, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. He comes as living water. He comes as the bread of heaven. He comes where he came and he died in our place. There is none so precious as Christ. There is none so beautiful as Christ. Oh, that we would not profane him with our words or our deeds. But if we do, we flee to him with the confidence of who we are in him. Thirdly, we want to consider God's name manifest to his people. How has this taken place? Jesus takes us up in verse 6. We have moved past that to consider these others. I've been treating these somewhat in the progressive that God has given a people to Jesus and he has given Jesus to his son and then Jesus comes making known the Father. That's what Jesus is celebrating in his prayer. He's made known the Father to his men. He's revealed in, in, in unfolding stages from that point onward to, to the Jews in Judea, Jerusalem, to uh, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. He's making known the Father. He's manifesting the Father, that he would give the Father to the sons of Adam. I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. As I said a moment ago, they're God's because he's the creator. You know, there's all kinds of people walking around think that they live unto themselves. They live a life like their God. and They determine their days. They end up being very frustrated and even suicidal at times because they don't submit to the reality that God is God and they are not. And yet Jesus came to reveal to us that God is merciful and strong to save. He has manifest his name. Now, Jesus walked with these men. He walked in... Israel for three years, and in all his walking, all his doing, he has made known the Father. He has manifested him. He has opened him up. He's revealed him. It's clear from Jesus' teaching throughout John's gospel that he did this with his words and his works. That's how he's made him known. We've been told that the works he did were the works of the Father. The words that he spoke were the words of the Father. He did what he saw the Father doing. He declared that which he heard 
the Father speaking. And we've seen Jesus as the second Adam then fulfilling what the first Adam failed to do. Adam was God's image bearer. When God made Adam and Eve, they were image bearers, male and female. He created him together. They were the image of God on the face of the earth. They manifested God, the creator, to the creation. We say, well, you know, the, the inanimate plants and you know, the, the, the mobile creatures that, that are dull in their senses. But nonetheless, Adam was to rule over them. He was to guard and protect them. He was manifesting the reign of God on the earth. And he sacrificed it all for a lie that he could be God. That it wasn't enough just to be the image bearer of God. How glorious a position. How exalted. There's no greater thing or position that could have been given to a creature than to manifest God to the creation. And Satan offered him up a bowl of pottage. You can be God. You don't need God. Just be it all. You know, just eat this forbidden fruit and, and, and you'll have it all. And thus, man was thrust into condition of sin and misery ever since. But Jesus came as the second Adam. He came buried in the image of God, not just as man. He did that as man. He was an image bearer. He was in our humanity. But he came as he was, God in the flesh. God coming on earth to reveal God to men. And he didn't fall short. He manifested God to all the earth. Jesus uses name here. He says, I have manifest your name. And in the scriptures, uh, I think most of you come to understand this. But let's just, just talk about when, when he says, I have manifest your name, Jesus is using that name, that title, to speak of all that God is. We do this somewhat. You know, if you know, somebody says something, do you know Pastor Daniel? You know that name? We don't say, yeah, I know Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L. I know the name. No, it's like, do you know him? Do you, do you know what he is? you have some idea of who he is, what he's like, the way he lives, the way he uh, speaks? You, you know something about him. How much more with God? His name speaks of all that he is, all his titles, all his attributes, all his works. This is what's represented when Jesus says, I have manifest your name. His name is the very self-God. The Father, it speaks of his character, his attributes. And surely we see that Jesus has done this in all his ministry. He's made known the Father to the sons of Adam. God is so tied to his name, and his name is so tied to him, that it's captured in the third commandment where we are commanded, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Westminster Shorter Catechism opens that up. What is it to take the name of the Lord God in vain? And you see in this answer that it's not just the name of God or his number of names. Listen to the answer. The third commandment requires the holy and reverend use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Everything. All these things. The rising of the sun is a manifestation of who God is. The, the gathering of a storm and the thunder, the lightning, the falling of the rain, it is a manifestation of who God is. The beauty of a, the spring flower breaking forth from the earth is a manifestation of who God is. The birth of a child into the world is a manifestation of who God is. 
The work of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is a manifestation of who God is. And it is in Christ, chiefly, that we see God. He is manifest in the Son. And Jesus says, I've done this. This is what you charged me to do. What the first Adam failed to do, I've been faithful to do. And he has made God known in all the earth. So much so that Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. This is all fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, this time when Jesus walked on the earth, this, this reality that he manifests the name of God, that it is in him that this comes to pass. There's a multitude, multitude of prophets that speak of this. I'm just going to bring out two. Psalm 22:22. We, we sing this from time to time. Here, David, writing prophetically, prophetically speaking Christ's words, we find Christ saying through the prophet, I will declare your name to my brethren. That's what Jesus is saying. I've done that. He goes on, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And then listen to how Isaiah speaks of God. O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. His desire is for God, as Isaiah understands it. His name. They're tied together. They're inseparable, even as it is for us. My friends, do you know God the Father in His name? Do you know something of His attributes, of His character? His character is revealed in the law. Do you, do you know of His words and works in all the earth? He is the first person of the Trinity. He is, he is almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. Do you know this? That's great. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to know God this way. That's only knowing God generally. You must know him and his name through his son. Jesus makes known the Father. The Jews would never dare to call God Father. But Jesus comes to sinners and he reviews God Almighty as Father. And he opens the way for creatures, the sons of Adam, to come to God as a father through the blood of his cross. Do you know Father, the Father this way? Do you have a relationship with God Almighty through his Son so that he's your Father? My friends, there is no sweeter relationship than you can have. What a beautiful and marvelous thing. Really, if, you know, if we just think on that, is it not too marvelous to behold, to consider that God relates to us. And through his son, he calls on us to call him Father. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, who is infinitely holy, 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 would have us as his children call him Father through the Son. Indeed, let us, if we answer yes to those questions, ascribe glory unto the Father in our worship and in our words and in our works. But indeed, if you say, no, I don't know God that way. I don't know him intimately as the Father. I don't know him as you're describing him in the gospel that through the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know him that way. My friends, you need not despair. You need not go out of here saying, well, I wish I knew that because Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. If you would come to God and know him as your Father, you come through Christ. And he says, no one who comes to me will I cast out. 
a glorious invitation, a promise of the one who cannot lie, the one who is truth itself, invites sinners to come. Come to him, and he will bring you to the Father. Oh, how precious is the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth, let us consider that Jesus' people kept his word. Here is This is another giving, as I referred to in the introduction. This time the giving is the giving of obedience by these redeemed people, by these people who have been brought to the Father through the Son. They, they give obedience. They keep God's word as an expression of gratitude for so great a salvation. Note this, the giving of this obedience is not the reason for the salvation. It's the response to the salvation that God has wrought. God gave a people to his son, and the son saves these very people by his perfect life, a sacrifice, a sin-atoning death, and a resurrection. And the Holy Spirit brings this salvation to dead sinners, making them alive unto God in salvation, granting them faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be united to Christ, being brought to the Father, adopted by the Father. This is all accomplished. And then those people desire to obey the Father, to delight. It's the natural response, the overflow of new life in Christ. Multiple times a year, we, we use the Heidelberg Catechism 1 and 2 as our confession of faith. I just want to revisit that right now. We're asked the question, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the salvation that God has wrought. And then it goes on to celebrate his sovereignty in our lives. But then the next question is, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. And how do we know that? God declares that to us in his holy law. Secondly, we must know that I am set free from my sin and misery, which God declares to me in his holy gospel. See, the law comes as a schoolmaster to point us to Christ, to teach us of our need to highlight our unworthiness and to highlight Christ's worthiness and to exalt him as the Savior. But thirdly, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance with grateful obedience to his holy law. That's what Jesus is praying about. These men whom the Father has given to him out of grateful obedience for so great a salvation, they've kept his word. Chiefly, and he's celebrated here, they've kept the word and that they believed that he has been sent by the Father, that he has revealed the Father to them. They believed these realities and it's been accounted to them as righteousness. And yes, as we've seen, and we're going to see as we move forward to the end of John's gospel, they're frail men. Brothers and sisters, we can identify with them. Don't you dare ever think that Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Thaddeus are somehow you know, better men than you are. They're like flesh. All the weaknesses that you know and experience, they had them. And that's going to be manifest as Jesus sees they're going to flee. We'll see their weakness. We'll see Peter deny Christ not just once but twice and three times and was swearing. And yet, they're new creatures in Christ. God has redeemed them. This morning our focus has been on giving, the giving of the Father. We've seen that the Father gave a people to his son, that he would save them. The father gave his son then to the people as their savior, as the only savior of sinners. And Jesus then manifests the name of God, that is, he gave sinners a view of the father in his word and in his works and in himself. Finally, then what shall we render? 
to our God for so great of salvation. My friends, if you're one of those who have been redeemed, what we render is ceaseless praise, but also obedience in Christ. Yes, day by day, week by week, month by month, we press on in our obedience. We stumble all along the way. And yet there's one thing that never changes. By faith in Christ, we are justified. My friends, you can never be more justified than when you first believe and as you live your life. You can never be more justified in eternity than you are in Christ when you first believe. But having been justified, God then begins to work in us sanctification, growth and holiness. That's where we live every day. But we must live that life with this ever in view. We have been given by the Father to his Son, and the Son has been given to us as our Redeemer, and he has given us so great a salvation, and he even gives us the grace and the strength to give obedience to him. So all praise, glory, and honor should be to God. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord our God, we marvel at these things. We bless your holy name, Father, for so great a Savior who has purchased so great a salvation and that you have brought us into it. Father, it is our delight to call you Father, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted one intimately known unto us, revealed by the Son who brings us to you, O God, that you are our Father and that we are your children. Father, we thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are tender with us. You know our frame. You know our weakness. You know that we're but jars of clay. Whereas one has said, cracked pots. And yet, you strive with us. You're long-suffering with your people. So great is your love for us. Lord, may our love be greater for you. And may it be a manifest in our growing obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.